This episode of Recommended is sponsored by Book Riot's very own Best of the Year YA Giveaway. We're giving away $500 worth of the year's best young adult fiction and nonfiction, selected by Kelly Jensen, former YA librarian and current Book Riot YA expert. Go to bookriot.com backslash 500YA giveaway to enter. This giveaway ends July 31st. This is Recommended, where we talk to interesting people about their favorite books. Today, Caitlin Doty shares her love for The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker, and Sherry Thomas reminisces about The Legends of the Condor Heroes by Lewis Chan. Caitlin Doty is a mortician, activist, and funeral industry rabble-rouser. In 2011, she founded the Death Acceptance Collective, The Order of the Good Death, which has spawned the death-positive movement. Her first book, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, was a New York Times bestseller. Her latest book, From Here to Eternity, is an immersive global journey on how various cultures care for the dead. My name is Caitlin Doty, and The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker is my recommended. I found The Denial of Death for the first time in 2009. I was a mortuary school student. I was doing research in the library, and I saw this older book on the shelf, and I pulled it down and decided to take it out just because The Denial of Death, what a great, you know, deathy-sounding book title. And within the first two pages, it was just like, this is what I have been looking for. I had been working at a crematory prior to that. I had all these ideas about death and its relationship to culture and these vague feelings. But here was someone in a book who actually said with sources and philosophy and psychology that death is in everything we do and motivates everything we do. And it's written in an elegant way. And it's a real academic who's done the work on this. Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, which was my first book, was already starting to be written, but it was much more stories. It was much more stories about working in the crematory. It wasn't, I wasn't as comfortable mixing philosophy and and different disciplines into the work. And I think Ernest Becker, his background a little bit is he was trained as a cultural anthropologist, but he pursued multiple disciplines. And that made him actually a really bad fit for academia in many ways. But with big subjects like life and death, you need to bring in all the disciplines. He really, in many ways, inspired me to do that in my own writing. And I like to bring in anthropology and psychology and philosophy whenever I can to combine it with the real life stories of of working with death. Becker has definitely influenced my writing. I think he makes me want to write about death in a bigger way. Like there's part of my writing that's just about how a body cremates in American crematories and how it's set up and how the bureaucracy is set up. And I think that's really valuable and really interesting for people to hear about. But there's also a much, much, much broader view that you can take, which says that the way that we dispose of our dead and the way that we fear or do not fear death defines our society and defines our interaction and defines our future. And I think a lot of that more ambitious sense of my writing comes from Becker. There are so many wonderful quotables from the book. You can quote it endlessly, but I think the one phrase that I really remember is 
him quoting William James at just the right time and saying that death is the worm at the core of our our happiness in our lives. So no matter how happy, another phrase he uses is the skull will always grin at the banquet. So no matter how happy we are, no matter how engaged with our lives we are, the fact that we're going to die is always peering its little head out and affecting sometimes positively, sometimes negatively how we live our lives. I read The Denial of Death all the time. I will say that the first one quarter of the book and the last one quarter of the book are really the best. The middle section gets into a lot of his feelings on psychiatry and depression and anxiety and schizophrenia, which can feel a little dated. But I think that the first section and the last section, just about the way that we are all, I I call it the Grim Reaper has his hand up all of our butts puppeting us around. That's not Becker's phrase. That's my like puerile phrase. But I think that those sections stand the test of time just elegantly and completely. Reading The Dial of Death definitely sent me down a rabbit hole. His other books are also beautiful. He unfortunately died at age 49 of colon cancer, and Denial of Death won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction two months after he died, which is a little womp womp. And what's so funny is that, so his, Ernest Becker's thesis basically in this book is that it's really, really hard for humans who are so individual and so special and can imagine the cosmos and great civilizations to accept that we are biological sacks of flesh that will eventually die and rot. And this is so offensive to us. So we come up with all of these ways to deny death. And one way of that is immortality projects, like something that will last on after your death. And denial of death really was one of his big immortality projects. And he wins the Pulitzer two months after he dies, which is just so fitting somehow. I recommend this book all the time to other people. And it's not, I mean, it's not the easiest book to recommend because it's so rich and so powerful, but it's not a fun or easy read. To some people, it can sort of send you into a, a wee bit of an existential crisis. It certainly did for me. I really encourage all humans to read it, but, you know, maybe don't, don't take it for a beach read The denial of death definitely fits into my overall reading life, um, especially when I'm working on a bigger project. It's always really helpful for me to go back to the lessons in it. So, for example, it's it's wildly relevant to today. It was written in uh, in the early 70s, but it's still wildly relevant. So I was thinking recently about those who join the alt-right for example. They're disenfranchised, they're white men for whom this increasing push towards equality feels like oppression. And they're told that they deserve this hero project, this immortality project, they deserve a job, they deserve a wife, they deserve a family. And it can feel like women and minority groups are stealing that for them. And their immortality project is taken away from them and they have to find it elsewhere, like, I don't know, racist Pepe memes. Whenever you read Becker, you can come back to this idea of immortality projects and you start to see it everywhere. You see that how people use religion 
to to live on forever, how they use culture, how they use building of buildings or a company, how they use their children and live on through their children, and how it manifests in bad things like war when people's different immortality projects conflict. And it's almost like once you read this book, you cannot look at the world without the lens of this book. You know, I don't know that I ever <laughs> turn off the denial of death filter. I don't read a lot. The fiction that I read tends to be very light, like, um, you know, fiction for YA or fiction, for, you know, romance or some sort of very light. I'm much more of a nonfiction reader. And I think that's just because I think that truth is stranger than fiction in many ways. And, you know, no disrespect to fiction. There's you know, many people who create amazing work through that way. And, and there's ways to explain death through fiction that can be much more powerful than nonfiction. But I think that just being able to see everyone at work and the way that their own immortality projects are playing out in the real world is a source of endless fascination for me. Even before reading this Denial of Death, I had always had the sense that death was in everything and that it was was pushing culture, but I didn't really have the words to express it or the framework to express it. And Becker really gave me that. And it makes the work I do now talking publicly about death so much easier because I do have this central core of belief that what I'm doing is really important and that talking about death makes you a much more self-aware person. So having that on my side is really helpful as an advocate. Thanks again to Caitlin Doty for joining us and recommending The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. Her book, From Here to Eternity, published by W.W. Norton, is available wherever books are sold. You can follow her on Twitter at The Good Death. This episode is sponsored in part by Book Riot Insiders. Level up your reading life with a 14-day free trial. Insider's perks include exclusive podcasts and newsletters, swag giveaways, and the new release index curated by All the Books host Liberty Hardy. You can wishlist upcoming releases you've been dying to read and keep track of the most exciting upcoming books. Book Riot Insiders is utopia for book nerds, and you are invited. Go to bookriot.com backslash insiders to find out more. USA Today best-selling author Sherry Thomas decided that her goal in life is to write every kind of book that she enjoys reading. Thus far, she has published romance, fantasy, mystery, and a wuxia-inspired duology. Her books regularly receive starred reviews and best-of-the-year honors from trade publications, including such outlets as The New York Times and National Public Radio. She is also a two-time winner of the Romance Writers of America's prestigious Rita Award, the third novel in her Lady Sherlock series, The Hollow of Fear, will be released on October 2nd of this year. Hi, I am Sherry Thomas, and Legends of the Condor Heroes is my recommended. Well, it is a coming-of-age story. It is about a young man who is born slightly dumb, I guess. <laughs> At least everybody thinks he's kind of slow in learning, and he's a very sincere, but not terribly smart kind, and through a series of extraordinary events, many of which happened before he was born, he was caught up in this rivalry that required him to become a martial artist. And on his way to becoming a martial artist, he meets many extraordinary people and meets a extraordinarily beautiful, extraordinarily smart girl who is like his opposite in every ways, but they fit together so well. And this whole thing is set around 
the complex political backdrop of the Mongol invasion of China. This is near the end of the Song dynasty. Genghis Khan is on the move, and he is actually raised with Genghis Khan's kids. And so this is all about a test of loyalties, and uh, so who is he going to side with, and you know, what will you sacrifice for love, what will you sacrifice for duty, and the, the pursuit of the highest forms of martial arts, who will get their hands on this legendary book of martial arts that will supposedly give the possessor of the book unlimited powers, and so on and so forth. It's got every trope. It's got every kind of characters, and it's vividly written. It's a classic in Asia. It is pretty much known by everybody. Well, maybe not someone like my mom, who doesn't like historicals and who doesn't like anything with a, any kind of fantastical element. There's no fa- no real what Europeans consider fantastical element, but she likes daily life things. But if you go to China, almost everybody will have heard of this book, will have either read it or seen a TV adaptation. I first saw the Hong Kong 1983-84 adaptation uh, when I was around 10 years old, and it took my city by storm. All my friends, we were all talking about it, we were all acting it out, and we were all just like glued to the TV come Friday night. We know where the books were to be found in the sense that when I was growing up, China was a very different place from what it is today. It is so much more... We have so much less of everything. So if you go into a bookstore, the selections are also kind of paltry, and you have to like wait behind the counter for someone to actually get a book and give it to you. We didn't even have the open shelf kind of bookstores yet. So bookstores didn't carry those, or if they did, I couldn't afford it. But what I could afford was to rent this book. We had book rentals then. No libraries, but there will be these old men who have these little stalls in parks. They will lay out these books on the on the ground on top of like a, a cover or some sort of piece of cloth, a large piece of paper. And you need to put down some deposit and then you can rent each title for 30 cents a day. And these are big books. So it's four volumes. And so it will cost me basically 120 cents to rent them. And I was a fast reader. So I will read them overnight, go back for the next volume. Actually, my grandmother was opposed to me reading these kind of books. She, she watched TV too, because she liked to watch TV. But she was opposed to me to reading this kind of book. She was afraid it would affect my studies at school. So what we would do is, outside our front door, there's a fire extinguisher hanging on the wall. And I would put it under the fire extinguisher. The weight of the fire extinguisher would hold it against the wall. So I would go home that way. And then when she wasn't looking, I would slip out and bring the book inside. So it was like lots of cloak and dagger stuff to read a martial art epic. I feel like Chinese is a more difficult language to translate into European languages, at least, I think, than the other way around. I'm not sure why I feel so. It's possible that it's because I feel like there's so much history woven in the Chinese language. And it's a denser language. It is a language that relies a lot on uh, idiomatic usage that's inexplicably bound up with history and literature and, and everything else. To know the Chinese language is to know a lot of history. Also, this, this is actually not a poetry-heavy book, but if a book in which a lot of poems are quoted, that happens sometimes, or there are a lot of 
poetry being written in the course of the novel, as it is the case of Dream of the Red Pavilion, which is a major Chinese classic. It is really difficult to translate Chinese poetry into into English just because the language is perfect for poetry and it's so much denser. And I feel like I've never seen English translation that perfectly captures Chinese, but I feel like sometimes the Chinese translation of the English language is okay. It's not that. So there may be that, or there may be just, this is so big, this is such a huge story, and also so genre. And there's so much history in there so that you're not only reading a big story in a genre that most people are not familiar with, but you're also, you know, with a lot of history, with a lot of like Chinese values in there. So this book is hugely Chinese in identity. So I just don't know how the translation of that would come across. I think very briefly, when I was in fifth grade, I thought I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know that I wanted to write this kind of book because... That was only one I had read. I thought I wanted to write children's books because at that point, that was mostly what I was reading, children's literature. And then I think I tried my hand at writing a bit and found that I cannot go on after writing the opening page. So I was like, oh, well, I guess I'll have to concentrate on my studies and just be whatever you know the country wants me to be then. <laughs> it was one of those things that later happened quite by accident. Uh, I, I didn't mean to become a writer. All throughout my teens and my early 20s, I had no thought at all. I didn't take any creative writing or anything like that. But once you do become a writer, then all the books that you have ever read, everything that's ever influenced you start coming into place. I have written uh, a duology called The Heart of Blade, and it focuses is on a young girl who grew up, who is like the daughter of a courtesan and an English adventurer. And she grows up in the household of this important Mandarin prince. But she's like nobody there. And she learns martial art with her ama, who just happens to be her, with her nanny, basically, who just happens to be a martial art expert who's like on the run, which is, <laughs> of course, just a thing to have in a martial arts ethic. And I don't know that I was influenced directly by Legends of the Condor Heroes in these books, because Legends of the Condor Heroes, although wonderful, is also kind of old-fashioned, in which everything is kind of black and white. It's very clear who's right, who's wrong, who is good, who's bad. It's kind of very, very clear. I think that's why also people love it, because it's so easy to identify with a hero and so easy to hate the enemies and so on and so forth. But I think by the time we were we were growing up, and I think even in his later books, it becomes slightly more areas of gray. But the influence is there. The love of the genre definitely he planted in me. And I am writing a Mulan adaptation now for Lee and Lo publishers. And of course, the first thing I said to myself was, what kind of girl would dare go to the front lines by herself? I was like, she's a martial artist. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's just that... The love of the genre is there so much. So as soon as you come into anything martial arts adjacent, you're like, yes, this is what I'm going to do. So yes, it did influence me and uh, it did instill in me this love of scale so that when I encountered Lord of the Rings, I was like, yes, that is something I could love because it does have that scale also. Has that you know historical background in the sense that even though the historical background in Lord of the Rings is all made up, you feel like you are living there in that era with those people and with all their problems. I've always felt like Lord of the Rings is the most Chinese book 
have ever read in the English language, in the sense that it's obsessed with the passage of time. It's obsessed with changes wrought by the mere passage of time. Sometimes I think, heck, it's the only theme in Chinese poetry. <laughs> it's just all about time passing and things changing, whether you want them to or not. Thanks again to Sherry Thomas for joining us and recommending The Legends of the Condor Heroes by Jin Yang, a.k.a. Louis Chan. The second book in the Lady Sherlock series, A Conspiracy in Belgravia, published by Penguin, is available wherever books are sold. Keep an eye out for number three, The Hollow of Fear, this October. You can follow her on Twitter at Sherry Thomas. Next week on Recommended, one author discusses a favorite classic. Well, it's one of those books that, because it's a classic and a Newbery winner, but it was like in the 1970s, I feel like it's sort of been forgotten in a way, which is sad because so relevant to today. Like I was reading that and I was like, oh my gosh, this is still relevant today. Like this is still happening. Thanks again to our sponsors for making today's episode possible. If you like what you heard, please take a moment to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We love to hear your feedback and it helps other folks to find the show. You can find show notes at bookriot.com slash recommended, and you can email us at recommended at bookriot.com.